it's a bunch of Sesame Street ass <laughs> motherfuckers around here. I, I mean, he said, wait a minute. I, he even said that he had he had taken pride in the fact that he could be at the tavern all night and still show up to court the next day and win all the cases just by the seat of his pants. That he didn't need to do any research. Okay, I I, I gotta I gotta bag up. I got to bag up because girl, you're going to give me heart troubles. I'm, I'm I, mm. okay. So wait, so the attorney wait, to jail. I, I, wait before we, the, the attorney go to jail because it, it's just too many. <laughs> it, it's just too many people that's going to jail. I, I wait, just wait a minute. Okay. I can help him. I can do better than the fuck they did. Uh, okay. Snow Files, Season 2, Episode 38, A String of Things, with Mimi. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. Hey y'all, we have so much going on. It's been an incredible month, and we want to thank all of you for riding this roller coaster with us. We do have some updates. Uh, you may have seen the shares on social media for the special on Bart McNeil's case, which will premiere on September 25th at 7 p.m. Central on Oxygen Network. Recall Bart was convicted for the murder of his three-year-old daughter under Charles Renard, state's attorney's office. You know, the same state's attorney's office that wrongfully convicted Jamie. Bart said from the beginning that he suspected his then-girlfriend, Ms. Knowlin, of murdering his daughter, but Bloomington police wouldn't listen. Imagine that. They arrested Bart the next day, and they convicted him in 1999, the same year Jamie and Susan were arrested. Nearly a decade later, Masuk was convicted of the murder of her mother-in-law, and she did it in a very diabolical way. She lured her mother-in-law to Joliet, under the guise of hiring her as a Chinese interpreter. If you're in the Bloomington normal area, you're in for an exciting, special opportunity. On October 5th, there will be an exclusive viewing at 8 p.m. at the Normal Theater of the two-hour Oxygen Special, followed by a Q&A featuring a panel of experts from the episode, including local crime reporter Edith Brady Lunny from WGLT, Scott Reeder, who covered the case on Suspect Convictions podcast, private investigator Kevin McLean, our good friend and Chicago's own private investigator Paul Cialino, and Bart's cousin, Chris Ross, who's led the charge advocating for Bart's innocence. And although our good friend, Dr. Amanda Vickery can't make the panel, she's also featured on the Oxygen Show. 
So for the latest updates, visit freebark.org. I mean, I'll be there and I can't wait. Remember, any light that shines on Renard's corrupt reign as McLean County State's Attorney helps all of us. It helps all of our cases. We must stick together and support each other in this fight. And don't forget, we talked about it a little bit last week. Jamie and I will be guests on the Popo Report, hosted by Paul Cialino, P.I. Extraordinaire, and Lupe Wolf McGuire, Esquire, which should air around October 8th or 9th. We'll be sure to post the link when it airs. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, download, and listen to the Popo Report, the most fantastically raw review of criminal justice news in Chicago, Illinois, and around the country. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating. Last week, Leslie and I had the best time talking about Jamie's case with Mimi and Miss Adams on A String of Things with a Z podcast. And we thought those of you who are knee-deep in Jamie's case with us might enjoy a reaction from folks who haven't dug into the case as much as we have. What can we say? Mimi and Miss Adams are hilarious. But most importantly, they got it. They got it right off the bat. As you probably heard in the intro, (laughs) sometimes it's good to take a step back and get a new perspective. Thanks so much, Mimi, for letting us share this wonderful interview. You can listen to A String of Things with a Z podcast at astringofthings.podbean.com. Mimi would like to welcome and thank you all for joining her on this episode of A String of Things. On this show, we hold absolutely nothing back. So if you can't take the heat, well, you know the rest. The show is also not recommended for children, so definitely have your earbuds on or put the kids to bed. Now, grab a glass of wine, kick back, and enjoy. Tonight is special guest night. We have Tam here from the Snow Files. She will be telling us a story about a guy named Jamie Snow. And he was wrongly convicted 21 Yeah, I think he's been in prison for 21 years. And they have been working on this case for 11. He's claiming his innocence. And I believe they may have had a breakthrough. They did go to court on the 8th. Don't quote me on it. She will tell you. This is Tam. Go ahead, Tam, and tell us who you are, what you do, where you're from, all of that good stuff, all of that good stuff. (laughs) And then, you know, just kind of start from the beginning of, you know, I mean, how it happened and where we're at now. So first, Mimi, I wanted to thank you so much for having us. You are a soldier working during COVID, and I know the show means a lot to you, so hats off to you, but you make sure that you get your rest. You sleep in and get all that good water and stuff. I'm the co-host of Snowfiles podcast, 
That is about the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. The other co-hosts are Bruce Fisher. He's from an organization called Injustice Anywhere. He's been supporting Jamie's innocence for many years now. And Leslie Pires, who joined us when Jamie's case was featured on another podcast, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. And the other frequent co-host, especially now that we're covering forensics, is Ray Wilson. Ray is a former chief of police from the New Jersey area. And he became interested in Jamie's case through his wife, Pam, who was Jamie's juvenile advocate when he was a teenager. We'll get this out in front. Jamie is not a Boy Scout or was not a Boy Scout. Uh, He had run-ins with the law before. Ray and I have filed at least 70 Freedom of Information Act requests over the past decade, which resulted in a FOIA lawsuit that the state actually settled and the judge said they just didn't respond properly. But Ray knows those documents extensively and he's just been a tremendous resource in deciphering and organizing the police reports. So the Snow Files podcast is a culmination of the work that's been done on this case for over a decade. We just decided, fuck it, we're going to put this stuff out because people just aren't listening and he was not getting relief in court. So in season one, we covered the trial extensively. And in season two, we covered the forensics. And we have about 51 episodes online, and that includes bonus episodes. And you can listen at snowfalls.net. Plug in that shit. In the last five or six episodes, we deviated because Jamie had a huge hearing on September 8th, like you said. And uh, I think we'll discuss more about that hearing. In the second hour, let me just give you a little overview of the case. It's a really, really thick case. So I'm going to try to make this really condensed. So in 1999, Jamie Snow and his co-defendant, Susan Claycomb, were arrested for the murder of a gas station attendant, Bill Little. That occurred on Easter Sunday in 1991 at the Clark Station in Bloomington, Illinois. And that's a rural town about two hours south of Chicago. Jamie's currently being represented by Lauren Myerskopf-Muller and Carl Leonard from the Exoneration Project. So this was an unsolved cold case that was miraculously solved in 1999 when two new detectives took over the case because the seasoned detective that had been on the case since the beginning had not solved it. To give you an idea of the issues, it might be better just to give you an overview of the crime and the evidence used to convict Jamie. If you're familiar with the criminal justice system, I don't think that any of this is going to come as a surprise to you. On the evening of March 31st, 1991, that was Easter Sunday, at 8, 8, p.m., a silent alarm was triggered at the Clark gas station. The first officer to respond was Jeff Pilo. He parked across the street from the station with his lights off and approached on foot, thinking maybe the suspect might still be in the station. Of course, they also had a lot of false alarms, so they weren't sure if this was a false alarm or if this was a real robbery. So as he stood across the street, he saw a male who, who we later 
know as Danny Martinez, putting air in his tires. He was also watching the front of the station, and he saw no movement inside the store. As he was watching the store, he had full view of the entire store and Martinez airing his tires. And these little Clark Oil stations were, I'm sure y'all are way too young to remember this, but I called them little Cracker Jack stations because they were just these little boxy, tiny stations. So if you stood across the street, you had full view of everything that was going on. Pila said that Martinez walked towards the store stopped and looked back towards his car, turned and walked towards the store again, turned back around and walked to his car, and then got in and drove off the lot, which was weird. It was like he was doing this little back and forthy thing, really strange. So while that was going on, he had called in the license plate of Martinez's car, but dispatch told him that the leads were down, and Pilo asked the dispatch to hold the plate because the guy was driving off the lot. And if this was a real robbery, he'd need that plate. Now, why he ever let Martinez drive off that lot is beyond me because Martinez was the only person on the scene when police arrived. After Martinez drove away, uh, Pilo started walking across the street. So as he was doing this, a pickup truck with two white males pulled up and started to get out of the truck. Pilo told him to get back in their truck across the street. He said they were being a little argumentative. And that's when Pilo noticed a shoe sticking out from behind the counter. Then he ordered the two to get off the lot and wait across the street. And then he drew his weapon. That's when he cleared the store and found the attendant lying lifeless on the floor. Now, there was another police officer at the scene at the same time. He arrived about the same time, maybe a little bit later than than Pilo, and that was Officer Williams. And he arrived at the scene, and he was like at an intersection. And that would be like if Pilo was across the street, the intersection was in the, on the left. So he was like at a stop sign, and he was watching the front of the door um, and the whole store the whole time. He had heard... Pilo calling the license plate over the radio, and he also didn't observe any movement inside the store. There was only one door in, one way out. Neither officer saw anyone enter or leave the station, and they both explicitly stated that they saw no movement inside the station. So police identified three eyewitnesses in the case. Of course, there were no eyewitnesses to the crime that we know of, so we kind of use that term loosely. Um, one was Gerardo Gutierrez. He reported that he was at the store around 8 p.m. and he pulled into the station for gas. He was pumping gas and that he saw a man inside the station arguing with the attendant. Um, when he entered the station to pay for his gas, he said that he handed the attendant money and he reported the attendant's hands were shaking so badly that he dropped the money. And he said there was a man standing next to him and that he lit a cigarette. And then after he went home, he heard about the shooting. Uh, He said either on the radio or the TV, and then he returned to tell police what he saw just a few minutes earlier. So that night, police put together a composite drawing based on Gutierrez's description, and it was released the next day. So he described a man with a with an earring and a fresh injury on his chin, so fresh that he could see holes in his skin from the stitches. 
in, in the early morning of the crime, he identified a mugshot from photo books as the suspect. And he also called the police a few days later and claimed he saw the man again in Peoria, Illinois. But Gutierrez never picked out Jamie, not in a lineup or photo sessions over the years, and ones that even included multiple photos of Jamie, which is a whole other thing. The other eyewitnesses, they said, were Carlos and Juan Luna. They were young teenagers who lived across the street, a few houses down from the Clark station. They claimed that they were looking out the window to see if their their aunt was working because she worked at the Clark station. They were going to go see if they could get some free candy. They claimed they saw a man come out of the station, facing forward, opening the door with his left hand. Carlos said the man had on a black coat down to his ankles and the coat was unbuttoned. He stated the man looked like he was hiding something under his coat, but he could not see what it was. It was later determined that these boys were like over 200 feet from the station. Carlos gave a statement saying that he didn't think he was able to identify anyone later, and Juan said he thought that maybe he could, but neither boy was able to complete a composite drawing. That night, the police composite artist said that they did, they just couldn't give enough details of the man's face. He was asked later during the trial if he knew Danny Martinez, and he answered yes, but he also testified that he did not see Martinez at the scene. So from where Martinez was located, Juan and Carlos would have had to look through Martinez to see the suspect come out of the door if that all happened at the same time. I have a quick That's question. That's okay. How long from the silent alarm to how long was did they say that the body had been there? Were they able to determine that? Because it seems, though, the guy that they let go, they should be trying to find that person. Yeah, they did find him. (laughs) But no, they never looked at him as a suspect. They always looked at him as a witness. So the silent alarm, I believe, went off at 8.18, and police were there a couple of minutes later. So this was a few Um, minutes after the guy left, the one that said he was standing there shaking, and he he had an uh, altercation with someone in there. It's something weird here. So the guy that left it, which is really something weird, the guy that picked someone out of the lineup, happens to be there during the time that he was having an altercation, which was around eight something, correct? Gutierrez did not pick uh, Jamie out of the lineup. Right, but he did, uh, he gave a a description though, right? Right, oh, in the photo lineup. Okay, Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, he did pick a guy out of the photo lineup, and then he said he later saw him in Peoria, and uh, called the cops, and that that just never went anywhere. They were like they didn't How see reliable him. So. Is he? Mm, we can't find him. I bet because <laughs> it seemed really weird that he just so happened to be there, and so happened to see this. Because if you see that this man is really nervous, he dropping his money. Why didn't you go out and call the police and say, "Hey, I think something's going on here." And then a few minutes later, the silent alarm goes off and this man is in there laying down dead. It it almost seems staged. So do you think if Gutierrez did it, that he would have come back to the station to try to cover 
his tracks. You know, people I've learned in my time, people are weird. He might have just came back just to see how much people knew or if they had any evidence or yeah. he dropped anything or, you know, he could have been nervous. Maybe he left a fingerprint or something to that effect because it really seems weird that you, then you turn around and see the same guy again in Peoria. So you're in Bloomington first. Then you see the same guy in Peoria. It's almost like he's trying to get the limelight off him. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't yeah, know. Point just, the finger at somebody and somebody give else this weird, you know, shirt. crazy description. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, you got an earring mm-hmm. in your nose. And, and see, a normal individual say, okay, I may have came to the gas station before, you know, this area before, whatever the case may be. And this man seems a little nervous. He's dropping money. And I'm sure he was looking nervous. So you mean to tell me you just walked out the store like nothing's going on and didn't call the police or didn't alert anyone or stick around just to see if anything happened? You just took off and then you came back to the store to see what had happened. No, it seems like you came back because you wanted to make sure that Uh you didn't leave any evidence or you wanted to see how much they knew or if anybody's seen anything. that That's just my opinion. You know, it just sounds so weird to me. But people are weird like that. You, well, I'm telling you, some some serial killers will go kill somebody and then go stand over the body and be like, oh my God, what happened? What happened? Yeah, yeah. I would not be surprised if the person came back. You know, eventually a crowd gathered. And I would not be surprised if the person that did it was in that crowd. Um, at all. Mm-hmm. One other thing that, you know, I didn't get deep into these, but Gutierrez also said, you know, he lived in the neighborhood, right? So he was saying, I frequented this wow. store. And the kid, you know, he was 18. So he's like, the kid was always friendly, you know, and he just thought it was so suspicious because the kid didn't say, he wasn't talkative, he wasn't saying anything, and that he was nervous and he dropped his change and I don't know. I do wonder about those first people that were on the scene, except for the kids that were across the street. And I just don't think they could have made an ID from that. I've, I've sat, I've stood there at their window and looked across the street. I actually have a, have a picture of that distance and you just can't tell. You just can't tell, mm. you know, who that, oh, you know, from that distance if somebody's walking out and, and all of that. And I looked at the case and stuff, and they said that the person that did do this shooting, he only walked away with $60. Yeah, yeah. So the $60 was in the papers. We actually know that the total was like $93 and something, but that's still not, you know, and that, and this just also makes us wonder if it was not a real robbery, if it was just a, you know, uh, some other issue like a retaliation or something that the attendant was into or, you know, say they got in a fight and he landed up shot. I mean, you know, there's so many possibilities, but I like that you latched onto it being staged because one other thing I, I don't think I said in my introduction was the, the cash drawer was missing. The entire insert was missing. So when we get into uh, looked like he had something under his coat, you know, that's kind of I mean, I'm sure the police were running around that night asking people, did he 
you know, look like they had something under their coat <laughs> because they eventually say, uh, you know, what he eventually testifies to was say he had a cash drawer under his coat. Like how you could ever fucking tell something's a cash drawer, you know, right. <laughs> so like, why right, would you even right. think of a cash drawer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe a bottle of pop if they were trying to steal it or something. But, you know, did Jamie do a polygraph? Because I think I seen somewhere where it said that he did a polygraph and he's asked it. But the prosecutors are still doing everything in their power to keep him in there for life. Yeah, yeah. They did do a polygraph and he did pass it. Then we have jailhouse informants that did not pass theirs, which we found out through FOIA's. Um, that they actually didn't pass them and they put the they put them on the stand anyways, you know, and they can always say they use polygraphs when it's convenient for them. Yeah. Had he failed a polygraph, they, that would be all over the news. But they're not saying he passed it. And they're not saying that the jailhouse informants that they put on the stand failed theirs. Um, they're not going to say that. How did Jamie? Well, like I said, he was a uh, he was a usual suspect. You know, he he was okay. in trouble. There were a ton of robberies going on at that time. Mm-hmm. People he was involved with were committing them, right. um, and he was just thrown into the basket of uh, you know poor white trash mm-hmm. trailer park trash that's always getting in trouble and. Uh, you know, that's it. Just to find somebody you know? to close the case. And usually that's close the case. what's happening. Yeah. Uh, what about his yeah. parents? Well, they're both deceased. Oh. And they, his mother died when he was uh, 17. And she had been sick with cancer for for many years. His father died. He was a little bit older, maybe in his early 20s. His father passed away from a from a heart attack, but they were, they were there for him. His stepfather, you know, was there for him during the trial and, and supported him, um, as did his family and stepsisters. So, you know, he, he had that, that kind of support, but once he went away, it was just kind of gone. They they gave up. Um, Yeah. Well, go ahead. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I I just thought that seems so funny about that that guy. Uh, Yeah, it just seemed funny how he entered, and then how the police that came on the scene let the car drive away. You got a dead body in there, but you're gonna let someone leave the scene. I don't understand that either. But you know, a lot of things and and the trucks that the yeah. That's the trucks. I, I mean, you just let them go. Okay, go ahead. I'll have to remember to tell you. I'll have to remember to tell you something about that about uh, Pilo later. So I, I think I was at neither boy was able to complete a composite sketch. There was a lineup about three months later where they attended it, and Carlos, he was fourteen at the time. He identified Jamie, but he said. I closed my eyes and just imagined which one of them might have did it. And he came to mind, you know, so that's not wow. a good idea. Are you yeah. serious? Did they use yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, they had, you know, they had, they had, they had Carlos on the stand. Now, Juan Luna didn't. He was younger. And I believe they were actually uncle and nephew, if I'm remembering right, you know, but at close ages, 12 and 14. So, uh, yeah. So I think the cop that was working this case at that time was like, that's not a good idea. Through FOIA, we actually got a memo that where the guy said, I stood across the street uh, that crime night. I talked to those boys and I could not look out that window and recognize people that I knew that were working that crime scene. There was no way that they ID'd anyone, period. And Carlos has since recanted his ID, by the way. So then we have Danny Martinez. So he turned into the star witness of the case. He was the one that was airing up his tires. He was the one that was on the scene. Um, he stated that he pulled into the parking lot to get some soda pop and air to air up his tire because it was low. And he said that while he was down putting air in his tire, he heard two sounds and he thought his car was backfiring. He said he saw a man backing out of the station with a tan windbreaker type jacket. And he said it was short that it came to his waist, which is a lot different than you know, what, what they said about a long trench coat type thing. Carrying a cash drawer. (laughs) And he said that it was, uh, his coat was zipped all the way up and the guy had his hands in his pocket. So in the first report, Martinez stated that as the, the man was backing out of the station, he got up from his position and started toward the station. He said it sounded like his car was about to die. So he stopped and turned and looked at the car, decided it would be okay. And when he turned back around, he saw the man out of the corner of his eye, rounding the corner on the east side, heading north. So although Martinez did assist in the development of a composite, it was starkly different from the one developed by Gutierrez. I think police believed Gutierrez because that's the one that they released to the public. On the night of the crime, Martinez also picked out two photos from the photo arrays and uh, stated that it's between these two. One of the photos was also the same one that Gutierrez had picked out, and uh, it's not known how those suspects were cleared. We just don't have any police reports saying how they were cleared, even though the two witnesses that they used at trial are saying that was the person they picked out a a freaking picture separately and said that that was the person that they saw. I'm going to cut in here, Sam. I believe your co-host did tune in, Leslie. Yes. Okay. Hi. Can you guys hear me? Yes. How are you, Leslie? Good. I'm good. I'm here now. Wonderful. So at any part, you can step in. I know you kind of getting the backlog of what she's saying and, you know, where she's at. So at any time, you can go ahead and chime in. And anyone else that's in the comments, if you have anything that you want to add or uh, share any questions, concerns, definitely feel free to call in and ask questions. Just make sure your mic is muted until you're able to speak, just so that it won't echo. You can go ahead and go. Well, I just kind of wanted to walk through the the lineups and the photo arrays um, that they had just chronologically. In June of 91, that's when an in-person lineup was conducted. And Jamie was number six. 
Martinez asked number three and four to move forward and said that number three looked like the person, but he was not positive. And like I said before, at that time, Carlos Luna was the only witness to pick out Jamie Snow in the lineup, but he also failed to identify him from subsequent photo books. And like I said in his testimony, he said, I just imagined every one of them doing it. And he came to mind and he fit the picture. And he has since recanted his identification in an affidavit. He said, as a 14-year-old boy, I thought the police had caught the right person. Because of this, I identified Jamie Snow. There were six people in the lineup. Where would he have gotten the idea that Jamie Snow was the right person? unless it had been suggested to him. So in October of 1991, there was another photo array session conducted with Danny Martinez. Um, He did not pick out Jamie, who was in those, but he picked out another photo, different from all of the ones that he picked out before. You'll see why this is important in a bit. So in November of 1993, there were multiple pictures of Jamie. <laughs> they, the police gave multiple pictures of Jamie in a photo session, and Martinez did not pick out anyone. During this time, the victim's family is just putting tremendous pressure on the police department to solve this crime. I mean, they should have. They wanted justice for their son. They used the media to keep pressure on the police department. They distributed thousands of flyers. They had a $2,500 Crime Stopper reward. And then an anonymous donor, which we later found out was Mitsubishi, donated $5,000. And this fund was separate. And to qualify, they asked for tips to be sent to a P.O. box. In December of 93, a completely different sketch was released to the public. So the first sketch showed a white man with a ball earring in his left ear, a mustache, chin scar, all of that stuff that Gutierrez said. He was described as being 22 to 25 years old, six feet two. Then they also released the composite that Dan Martinez had put together, which they did not look the same at all. And at first they said this was probably an accomplice, somebody that was with him, which doesn't fit, you know, what they said at all. And then soon after, I mean, I think there was one sketch of the two people and said this guy might be an accomplice. And then after that, they started solely using Danny Martinez's sketch whenever they put it in the paper. And even a police spokesman came out and said the FBI teaches police to stick to one composite drawing during a homicide investigation. And Bloomington police followed that guideline until yesterday. And he said releasing the second composite drawing was like putting the second string offense into a game when the first string doesn't get the job done. Investigators believe the two witnesses who helped Sanders make the drawings saw the same person, but Ogg said it's possible the witnesses were describing two different people and the witnesses were not with each other near the station. So they just moved forward with the second composite created by Danny Martinez. And of course, Jamie does not have a chin scar. He did not have a thin face and he never had an earring. So that was kind of perfect for the police. The victim's family continued to put tremendous pressure on the state. And in 1994, Jamie agreed to take a polygraph on the Clark 
murder as part of a plea deal in an unrelated case. And that's when he passed the polygraph. So at that time, uh, Charlie Crow was the lead detective. He was the one that had been investigating the case the whole time. And he told Jamie after he took that polygraph that he believed he didn't commit the crime, but that he thought he knew he did. And Jamie told him that he had no idea who did it, and he would definitely tell him who did it. And then the case just remained cold. And in the last part of 97, Detective Crow retired. And that's when Detective Barkus and Detective Katz were assigned full-time to the case. And then suddenly, jailhouse informants started appearing, saying that Jamie had confessed to them. <laughs> While he was doing a year and a half stint for obstruction of justice, he told everybody in the IDOC that he committed murder. He's doing a year and a half, and he's going to tell everybody, knowing that there's a reward out, that it's unsolved, and that it's a big deal in Bloomington, and that he was a suspect, right? Hmm. But interesting, these informants, they all gave different stories of his alleged confession. For example, one said that Jamie and a friend were at a party down the street and walked up to the station to get cigarettes. Then Jamie got pissed off because the attendant didn't give him cigarettes for free and and that they left. And then they came back later because he was going to get his free cigarettes. And then he was refused again. And he shot the attendant when he was trying to steal them because Jamie thought that the Bill Little, the victim, could identify him. Note that Gutierrez stated the man next to him lit a cigarette. So why would he be trying to steal cigarettes? I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. Were you? (laughs) Yes, I was. I was just going to say that. (laughs) So another story was that there were three of them and they pulled up to get gas. And then Jamie decided that he didn't need to pay for the gas. So he went into the store and shot the attendant. If he was going to steal gas, why wouldn't he just drive off without pay? Like, you know, anybody else does that wants to steal no, gas. Listen, that was you know, back in the day. just going to go in there and shoot the attendant just for some gas. That's crazy. And that was real popular back in the 90s. Just pull up, pump your gas, and pull mm-hmm. off. That was very popular exactly. back in the 90s. Yeah, you didn't have to even go see the attendant. That's why they changed the pumps now where you have to, sometimes it tells you, you have to come inside to pay now because a lot of people was getting gas and riding off. Right. You know, exactly. Exactly. So Jamie and Susan click home. Well, Tim, uh, before we, before we go on to that, why don't we talk about these people and how they said they got Jamie to confess to him. Like one guy supposedly all of a sudden for the first time ever is allowed to go mop the floor in front of Jamie's cell and says Jamie confessed to him through his cell bars randomly. You know, another guy says that he was working with Jamie and it was raining, so they got out of work early. So Jamie drove him to the beach to drink a beers in the rain and confessed in his car. Because um, oh, everybody who goes to him? the beach when it and, rains. And I'm telling you, these are people who actually went to court and said these stories. These aren't just people who, you know, wrote statements and, you know, got leads for the police. This is what was said in court. There were people who said they were at a party with Jamie and they accused him of it and he looked down at the floor. So therefore, because he didn't deny it, he was guilty. And that's actually a thing in Illinois. If you don't deny it, that's a confession. Yeah. So what else was there, Tam? 
was there an award? There was a, an award, right? That that's probably what they were asking. Exactly. There's a reward, yeah. a Crime Stoppers, and we don't know who got that money. Somebody got that. Oh, so somebody got the money. Somebody wow. got the money, well, and all these we, people well, were given other things and for their confessions. Every single one of them was either let off on charges. Uh, some DCF was involved in some of the women that testified against him. Their people got um, let out of prison, time off their sentences. They got out of solitary confinement because of it, things like that. We've been trying to find out about the reward money that we mentioned. So there was at least $7,500 that we know of. And everybody that testified said they didn't get paid and that they didn't get a deal. Now we know differently because we filed all these FOIAs and we found the evidence of deals. We can't find the evidence of the payment. And we've, we've gone every route that we can think of. There's no trail. They're just like, oh, well, we don't know what happened to the reward money. Wouldn't Mr. B should be able to disclose that information or is there a privacy thing attached to it? They said that they sent it to Crime Stoppers and that was it. Oh. They just said they sent it to Crime Stoppers and it was up to them. It seemed like Jamie may have, during the course of him growing up, how long did he live in Bloomington? I'm, I'm, I think maybe he made some enemies in the police department or something. Because it seems like they were coercing a lot of these people into saying that this young man did this. So what reason, my thing is, what reason to pick him out of, because obviously, obviously, if you're in a lineup, some of you in a lineup, you have to have a rap sheet or you've been in jail well, before. Well, that's what she was saying in the beginning. She said that he was no saint. He did have a rap sheet. He had been having troubles and problems with the police before. So I'm they, sure 50% of the young guys in Bloomington probably been in and out of jail during the 90s back then. Every person that you find in there, I guarantee you almost every person that you find on the exoneration database or that are being represented by Innocence Projects have a record. Some of them have been in gangs. Our friend Patrick Persley was in a gang and they framed him and he just recently got exonerated. I mean, you're an easy target. You're an easy target for the police. And if you're a usual suspect, it's even worse. It's easy for them to pin stuff on people that have been in Okay. Trouble. So let's talk about his actual rap sheet though. I mean, it was when he was a teenager, it was truancy. It was beer. It was running from the cops. It was smoking pot. As a young adult, he was accused of a robbery with his friends. So there was no violent crime. There was no drug dealing. There was no murder or anything like that. It goes, it's all of a sudden skyrockets from these, these crimes of, a, you know, a young man. And I know sometimes we could sound terrible saying that, you know, oh, that's not really anything bad to be accused of is like a robbery. But I mean, it's not, it, those are, you know, misdemeanors or I don't, I, you know, I don't know what the robbery would have been. He had burglary charges. He doesn't say that he didn't do that. I mean, he went, he went to prison for burglaring, but that is not robbery. And that is not All right. So what robbery. did he do, Tammy? He, he went weapon. into somebody's house and stole something when nobody CDs. was home. <laughs> and it was some, yeah. you know, so I, you know, I hate to downplay 
crime and everything like that. But when we talk about being a usual suspect, it seems like it goes from zero to 100 real quick with what these other charges were from a gas station murder of a boy. And, you know, they that's why they have to come up with these stories on how he got in a fight and it escalated quickly and it went badly because it doesn't make sense. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snow Files Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snow Files wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snow Files podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the join our Patreon button. I kind of want to backtrack and kind of get a little bit more information. So he did have misdemeanors, but he did have a burglary on his background. And how much time yes. did he serve for that burglary? I think it was three years. Three in the years. Early yeah. 80s, like 82 or so. Yeah. I was early 80s. Now, did, was there a gun involved? No. Okay, so they didn't uncover a gun. Okay, and when did he go to prison for this particular crime that he's fighting now? 1999. He was arrested in 99. Okay, how old was he? 34. Okay, the rest of the things that he did before, that was when he was a teenager. And early 20s. Yeah, still young, young, young adult. And burglary is yeah. so yeah. much smaller than murder. That's way smaller. Yeah. Or armed robbery, because yeah. that's a confrontational type. I mean, he might have been sneaky, you know? Like, I'm going to be sneaky and be a burglar and get go into somebody's house when they're not home. But not, I'm going to take a gun and wave it in somebody's face. And, you know, shoot them for $93. What physical evidence are they saying that they had on him? None. Oh. So how they have physical evidence. They have physical evidence that does not match him. They have shoe prints that don't match him. They have fingerprints that don't match him. So how um, they have DNA that? that doesn't match. Wait, I'm, excuse my. So how we had a. Was he locked up? It was twelve. Yeah, ja- exactly. It was twelve jailhouse snitches, and then a bunch of other witnesses. Some of them, you know, women. Um, there was, for instance, I can give you a quick story. One woman who says she was at a bar while his wife was there, and she overheard his wife telling a friend of theirs that she knows that her husband did it. And that's not true. That never happened. To this day, the woman says that, that that it never happened. But yet she went to the trial and told that to the jury. But at the time, this woman was very young when she told that to the jury. Maybe, I don't know, what was she, Tim, 21 years old? Um, so, yeah, and they were in a lot of trouble of their own, these women with their own charges, losing their children. These people who were just all, you know, a group of friends. And to this day, she says it doesn't happen, but yet she won't write a statement it's not that she's unwilling to write a statement it's just she to this day is like well i don't know what i have to do with this case i didn't really even say that much and it's not my problem but that's really the reason why he went away is because about i don't know uh 20 of these people who all had just a little bit to say when did these confessions come about did he have any because i know that prior to him going to prison they had 
people that said that he was in, you know, they did the whole lineup thing and those wasn't even accurate. So to keep him in there, what was it that kept him in prison? Because I feel like if you don't have anything and they're questioning you and you don't have and they don't have any physical evidence or anything, he should have been let out right then and there. And, you know, when they were questioning him. No, it was, it was, we didn't get through like the, you know, Danny Martinez eventually after him and his co-defendant, Susan Claycomb, which we were just getting into, they were indicted and arrested in 99. And then after their arrest, Martinez had a private meeting with the state's attorney's office and he ID'd Jamie from the picture in the paper from his oh, arrest, uh, right, and and a picture of the original lineup that he attended, and he said that's uh, that's him. So he became the star witness in the case, and his story changed from. Remember, in the beginning, we said that he saw somebody out of the corner of his eye rounding the building, to he was face to face with him within three feet. And, you know, by the time he testified, his eyes, I'll never forget those eyes. And that's what I identified in that private meeting at the state's attorney's office where nobody representing Jamie was, uh, you know, involved. And he became a star witness. And he said, for and sure, that was him. Tim, did you talk about yet how we spoke to the police officer who witnessed this entire interaction in 2020? So in no, 1991, ahead. Jeff Pilo, the first officer on the scene, is standing there across the street watching Danny Martinez at the gas station doing everything that he says he was doing while supposedly the suspect came out. And the statement in 1991 from this officer was there was nobody fled that building. Danny Martinez did not see anybody. There was no conversation with anybody. And he had an unobstructed view of the door. Now, as time goes on and Jamie goes through trial, the state tries to elude that maybe, you know, there were trucks going by in his way or think, you know, he was on his um, radio radioing and arguing to the 911 dispatcher. So he was distracted. And Jamie fled the scene while he was looking down at his radio. We talked to Jeff Pila in 2020, and he still says to this day, I had an unobstructed view of the door. Danny Martinez is lying. There was nobody else in that gas station parking lot except Danny Martinez. If I had seen a suspect flee the scene, of course I would have chased him. Like, what are you talking about? So this man's story has never changed. And even before 2020, he did write some other statements and going through them all, they've never changed over the years. They've always been consistent. So remember, I was telling you earlier that Jeff Pilo was standing across the street and he was watching Martinez go back and forth and go back and forth. He said that in a statement in 1999. When he got on the stand, he was like, uh, well, you know, I can't. And, and this was just a few months after he made that, made those statements. And we have the recording and, you know, his actual transcribed statement uh, from the police report on our website. But what he said, you know, he said, he said all of that. And then when he got on the stand to testify in Jamie's trial, he was hedging on it. He, but he came up later and gave an affidavit and said, Tina Griffin was the state's attorney. She said, just tell, just, just answer what I ask you, you know? So he was like, don't well, elaborate. Don't editorialize. Yeah. 
So I didn't tell him about Jeff Pilo. Uh, Jeff Pilo has some interesting history after the trial. He was arrested and convicted for stalking and raping um, oh. women. He would stop a woman and then like look them up, like their their address and their, you know, whatever. And then he would go back and rape them. And it was really diabolical. It was like hours long. Then he would make them bathe, like bathe, 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 no DNA, nothing left, you know, like that. So he was arrested later. Now, when he testified for Jamie, he had just gotten officer of the year in Bloomington Police Department. So it's a crazy, it's a crazy case. Who was the prosecuting attorney on this case? The person over the state's attorney's office was Charles Renard. Um, he is now a retired judge. He became, <laughs> um, yeah, he became a, uh, he became a process. I mean, he became a judge after, after this case. And he actually has about five that we know of two people that have been exonerated because that office withheld evidence and three that are sitting in prison right now, including Jamie. All um, in the nineties, all around the same. All, all in that same. And this is not Chicago. This is Bloomington, Illinois. So there wasn't a lot of murders happening. So how yeah, are all these I guys ending up with? Live in Bloomington a couple of years ago and it's really a small town. So uh, it is a college there. It's a college town. So you got a lot of young folks there. But it's, yeah, it's pretty much the t- like the town that I live in now. You can get around it in about 10 to 15 minutes. Their system is kind of jacked up and they don't have a lot going on out there. So they try to get you for everything. So I'm very familiar <laughs> with Bloomington. Yeah and Peoria and stuff like that. Leslie, uh, what part do you play in this, sweetie? I'm sorry. Um, I met Jamie through the original podcast he was doing with um, Truth and Justice. That was in, I think you guys started it in 2018 and ended it in 2019. And I met him just as a listener and we just became friends with him. And when that podcast ended, we all felt like the story didn't end there, that the podcast left a lot out and um, it wasn't done. And this story is so exhausting. As you can tell, you know, it never ends. Tammy's been talking to you for an hour and 25 minutes. We could probably talk to you for like another five hours. So we, you know, we decided we wanted to make our own platform, but we didn't know what to do. So the four of us got together and, you know, we just did it. And I've only known Jamie for three years now, not even going on three years and mm-hmm. um we've all just become very close and doing it together now? 55 oh yeah you know what I, I i see i didn't get pissed off now so my question is did anyone what is the word i'm looking for did anyone challenge the credibility of those bastards in prison because you're in prison so how is your mouth a prayer book at this time? His lawyer tried to, I mean, and the judge, it seemed like the judge was in on it with the state because he would say that he wasn't allowed to bring up certain things about these people. So the most horrific of crimes of like child molestation accusations were left out. 
we literally there was a fucking I'm sorry, I'm not allowed no don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But there was literally a priest who showed up to say that he was like a priest and a pastor and all this and he knew Jamie did it and blah 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 blah. Come to turn out he fled town because he was a child molester. That wasn't allowed in. Uh, in his own family, his nieces and nephews. So there was a DCF case going on and all of that. And this was already on the record that these accusations were flying around. And that's why he left town. But when he got on the stand, he didn't have to give an answer for why he left town. And when his lawyer, the defense attorney asked him why he left town, the state objected and the judge overruled it. And he got away with not answering the question. He couldn't even say the name of the parish that he was a preacher at. He was not a preacher. He was a preacher on paper where he just took a little class and got a certificate. That's just a quick example of how it was almost impossible to confront these people. The lawyer did confront them. He didn't do the best homework that he could. I mean, anybody now in today's day and age in 2020 would just hear the simple questions the lawyer was able to get in and would use our own minds and judgment to find them incredible. But back in the in the 90s, I think people just had a different perception and a different way of thinking. Yeah, and the system well, no. wasn't as um, advanced as it is now because you can go on there and Google people now. <laughs> I mean, it's so yeah, it's so and we we didn't talk about Susan Claycomb, which was his co-defendant. That's who I forgot to um, ask she, Where does she play? Yeah, so she was Jamie's sister-in-law, and there was no reason for her to even be like. They weren't close. In fact, they bickered, right? She was best friends with his ex-wife. They would hang out and, you know, they would get all, you know, whatever. Susan was like aggressive and just kind of mouthy and she just spoke her mind. So they bickered a lot, but that was his sister-in-law. So whatever. And that was the best friend. So they were trying to pull her into it. What they didn't know is that they didn't get along at all. So there wasn't any, they they certainly wouldn't have tried to pull off a crime together. So, you know, that was But Tim, didn't they need a driver because Jamie didn't have a car? That was the whole point of getting her involved? Yeah, I mean, they they said she was, but I think more than they needed a driver, because in Jamie's trial, they didn't even talk about a car. But uh, I think more than needing a driver, they needed, they wanted, she was pregnant when she was arrested and she was living in Tennessee, living her best life. Her husband was doing, had a plumbing business. They were doing good. They had their kids. She was pregnant with their third child. I believe it was their third child. And they came and got her and they arrested her and just upended their whole lives. And she got an attorney. And I think that what they got her for was to flip because they tried the entire time to get her to say, okay, well, we'll give you parole if you just say that you were driving the car. But they actually char- eventually charged her because, you know, when they try to offer you a deal and you don't take it, that pisses them off. So they charged her with murder, the same thing that Jamie had. And she went to trial with her um, her attorney, Steve Skelton, and he was a private attorney, and he did take people apart. He took Danny Martinez apart. He took the Lunas apart. He took every single person apart that got on that stand, and he did a stellar job. Ugh. And... Jamie's attorneys were paid thousands of dollars to sit in on that trial and they failed. They failed. They failed him in every possible way. 
And Jamie's attorney after trial, like in 2005, went to prison himself. So the okay, first you know cop that's on the scene. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, I'm okay. Wait a minute. I, I, I got to back oh. up because I got a lot of questions. Wait I have a, a lot of questions. Before you say that, wait, whoa. Maybe that's why the hell he did, was not unable to, because I can't, you know, I'm no attorney at all, but there's no way I wouldn't have been able to back down from a testimony from a son of a bitch in jail. Your mouth not a prayer book. As a matter of fact, sir, why are you here? What is your, what is your, were you coerced to say that Jamie did this? Were you paid to say this? Were you offered a reduced sentence? Hey, I would have investigated each and every last one of them sons of bitches if I had to go and find their first name and last name and find some of their friends, because there's no way those testimonies should have been able to be used. No way in hell. He flew by the seat of his pants and just went off the notes that he had, and that was it. He did no investigation. Was he a, pu- a, pu- a, pu- a He didn't interview. He, he didn't interview one witness. One witness he did not interview. Not was he one. a public pretender? No, he was. The first they had, first they had public defender who was over. And her name was Amy Davis, and she was like you, right? She was like, "This is bullshit." Um, I don't even know how you got indicted and where did all these people come from popping up, you know, in 1998 and saying that you confessed to them. Uh, and then she went to court, started filing motions like crazy discovery. And uh, she told the judge, I'm going to interview everyone. She said, I'm going to interview every one of these people and I need funding to do that. And this is what I'm going to do. And you know what? They got her recused because she had defended uh, one of the jailhouse informants 10 years ago in an unrelated crime and they got her recused. And since she was over the public defender's office and I promise you, I've read the transcript. She fought to stay on Jamie's case. And she said she was the head of the office. They recused the entire PD. So he, they went and got a stroke victim who was Pat. Patrick Riley, he had a, had had a stroke, and then they got Frank Pitzel, who was we would find out because he got arrested later and went to prison. Also, um, was a gambling addict, was uh, an alcoholic, had mental illness issues, and talked about in his sentencing hearings and mitigation, how it was just too much pressure. He was getting divorced from his wife and he was doing a murder case back in that time. And Jamie was like, what the fuck? He went to prison. Um, He was a, a, a power of attorney over an elderly person who was living in a nursing home. And he bilked her for like $250,000, which was her life savings that he spent on gambling. And he, she had to go into, she had to go into a nursing home because of him. She was, that was her money to survive on to the rest of her life. And she had to go into like public housing after that. He's a bunch of Sesame Street ass <laughs> motherfuckers around here. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm, he said wait a minute, he even said that he had he had taken pride in the fact that he could be at the tavern all night and still show up to court the next day and win all the cases just by the seat of his pants that he didn't need to do any research okay i i, I gotta i gotta bag up i gotta bag up because you're you gonna give me heart troubles i'm, I'm I, mm. okay so wait so, turn Wait before we the, the attorney go to jail because it, it's just too many. It, it's just too many people that's going to jail. I, I wait, just wait a minute. Okay, I can help him. I can do better than the fuck they did. Uh, okay. Yeah. This is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. So where did she come into play? Why did they even contact his co-defendant? Well, I mean. Where did they come in? I mean, did they get a? What, did he make a phone call to her, or what happened to make them get her and not his ex-wife? I mean, what correlation do they have? Yeah, there's no indication that I've seen why they arrested Susan. Um, oh. How how she got indicted was, um, I mean, she got indicted just like I mean, you can indict anybody. It was Tammy, his wife, who I think they were after, but she was very strong and she was just, you know, no, the F, you aren't going to do this to me and you're not going to do this to my husband. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. And she just wouldn't cave. And they were after Susan and hounding her the exact same way. And in the end, Susan didn't cave either, but she came off like maybe she might. Oh. Okay. Oh, shit. Maybe we so, need to look in the background of the judge. That maybe that judge need got some shit she had because it mm. seems like I can't understand how they can. Oh, I see you all. I'm keep going back to these witnesses, these people that saying yeah. that were locked up, that saying he confessed to them. Each one of them had a different story, mind you. One of them he took to the beach when it was raining. One of them he was uh, the guy was mopping outside of his cell, and he took. Hey man. How is it that the judge let that walk? Something had to be wrong with the judge. I mean, I know he yeah. didn't account. And then did they ask at least, because I would have been asking all type of questions, where are these people stationed in the prison? Because, you know, they have different cell blocks. Bingo. Bingo. You know, yeah. So where was these people stationed? And they weren't jail. even near him. I think, Tim, we found out there was no way for that guy to be physically mopping the floor outside of there. Wow. Yeah, because, you know, and there's an interesting thing there because Jamie was going on a court writ. You know, they get you closer to where your court is going to be. They'll put you somewhere overnight. And it's really interesting because when we did see those movement records, this particular person, his name is Bruce Rowland, was assigned to be a worker. He was assigned one day, and the next day, Jamie was assigned to go stay overnight there at the court writ. So he wasn't there very long. It was a very limited time that he was there. And then they don't put you in general population, right? You're in like a segregated place. So he's in a room. First of all, the workers can't talk to inmates ever. There's always a CO right right there. So he's behind a steel door 
they would have had to yell at each other. So you know, he so Jamie would have had to been yelling, saying, I did it. Yeah, I'm here because, uh, you know, I'm on the what they said was he was on the gang circuit. He said Jamie said he was on the gang circuit because of the, the real little homicide. It's like, what? He was there on a court writ. I mean, that's documented. But they let that go in court. And I think that goes to the judge because, you know, the judge was the one that did some of the some of the deals, some of the plea deals that these people had. He was over there. Exactly. The judge, the exactly. judge is the one that signed uh, signed off on them to do wiretaps on some of the people that we found out later through FOIA that there were wiretaps. We didn't even know. And guess whose name was uh, was on them? Judge Bernardi. Um, hmm. Same judge that presided hmm. over Susan's trial. Same judge that presided over Jamie's trial. How long was she locked up for? Susan was in for, uh, she was arrested in 99. And uh, her trial, she was acquitted in 2000. She had her baby while she was in county awaiting trial. That whole time they were putting pressure on her. Unfortunately, she's passed away. But I did get a video of her for some reason. I was up in Bloomington and we ended up in the parking garage together. And I got a video of her and she just, just made it clear that they were offering her stuff all the time and that they were putting so much pressure on her, but she just couldn't do it. She just couldn't say, right? So these are her neat, he's got six kids and those are her nieces and nephews. And, you know, and she didn't even like Jamie, but she stood up against what all of these jailhouse snitches that wanted to shave three years off of their fucking sentences. You know, she went to trial for murder and and was acquitted because Tammy Snow was her best friend, her sister-in-law. And, uh, you know, she just, she couldn't do it. And I don't know, man, that was a lot of pressure. I want to ask, it's okay, before you ask that question, him being in prison, uh, sounds like he's in maximum security. Well, of course, but is he in the prison where, you know, it's 23 and one or it's just he's just in his cell all day? Because they do have those prisons where you just can't get out at all. You know, you're just there because they see well, it's you. At- 20, it's 23 and one for maybe a shower twice a week. But if you have a job. You know, they let you shower more often and he, he works right now and he, he's always worked to get out of his cell, but he's in Stateville, man. That's, oh my God. Yeah. State, Stateville, Stateville is, Stateville is a, dun- a dungeon. It's a freaking dungeon. It's terrible. And for lifers, he got life without parole. There are people with life without parole. They, they don't even have access to most of the, educational programs although they're very thin because they just throw them away yeah how he come in contact with all these people but he's on 23 and one this this is just ridiculous well when he went when he was sentenced the jury gave him 30 years which he would have been out after 15 and on parole but then this judge bernardi looked at him and overrid the jury's 
recommendation and said, you are unredeemable. Those were his exact words. And he cited his truancy and that he drank as a child and smoked pot and said he was unredeemable and that he was going to get life without parole. And that was that. Where's this judge now? He was already convicted and given a sentence and they went back and gave him a right, and this is this is unheard of, and he did not do it to the other men that he were also wrongfully convicted. I honestly believe this has something to do with the prosecutor's attorney. That's just my opinion. I think they all were working, but what I can't understand why Jamie. I don't know if you guys get where I'm going with this. I, you know, okay, he had a baby, he smoked pot. You know, he probably ran from the police and so forth and so on. But why this kid? Why this young man? You know, why did they choose to fuck his life up? That's what I'm, and you know, I'm not being funny. I'm really being serious. Well, it wasn't the the original police that did this to him. It was the cold case police detectives that, you know, had nothing to do with these original crimes of Jamie's. So these were new people who were very enthusiastic, who just went through the old records and picked him. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the original detectives let it go. They said they thought it wasn't Jamie and they were going in a different direction. So I think that kind of accounts for it. They cleared him over and over all the way up to 1997 because there were rumors, you know, that it was Jamie. Um, and there were rumors that it was other people. And they and what we found out through FOIA, there was like 600 leads, different people. We've identified at least five alternative suspects that should have been explored that were cleared, that were there very close do to you, the crime scene. Do you want so, to talk about, Tam, how somebody said, you could, you probably remember the details better, the, the attorney, the state's attorney said, well, it's got to be him. It's going to be him behind closed doors. He, well, one, he told one of the, um, one of the jailhouse informants who came forward later, who oh, many of them have recanted, by the way. She said that Charles Renard, who was the state's attorney at the time, told him, well, if they couldn't find him, then Jamie's going to, you know, have to do, basically. Uh, they had to call, call they had to uh, close the case. Brenda Little, the victim's mother, was just being too much of a pain in the ass. She was calling the police department every day. And then they had, they convinced her that it was him that now now we know and we probably won't have time to get into all the new evidence and we certainly want to be able to cover the hearing the recent hearing but we found evidence of deals that was never disclosed to Jamie we found letters between for example jailhouse informant Bruce Rowland and the state's attorney where he's asking for that deal you know these are things that were not disclosed these were things that were not disclosed to Jamie. That polygraph that Jamie took, they never gave him the worksheet. Well, on the worksheet, one of the police told the polygrapher, you know, they, they're taking notes about what to ask him, that Danny Martinez said that was not the person that he saw. You know, even in 1994, he specifically said Jamie Snow was not the person that he saw. We still think there's a police report out there that says that uh, there's a ton of stuff that we don't have time to 
to go through, but we've gone through it uh, meticulously on the Snowfalls podcast, uh, episode by episode, witness by witness. You can hear every single thing about their story, the police reports, how they've changed. Um, right. So what we felt that. like with the other podcast was saying, oh, we don't have the time to do this. It's going to be boring to go through every single person. Everybody said the same thing. So we said, you know what? That's going to be the format of our podcast. Every single episode, we'll just talk about one person and what they did and the whole story. So I, the whole first season is just talking up every episode is just about one witness. And, you know, we talk about it for like an hour. In the trial. And, and you we know, that, felt, that was never talked yeah, about. we felt like that all needed to get on record. Very sadly, if this man dies in prison, at least this is on on the record one way or another. This is why I'm going to school for law because this just sad. Oh, you are! I did know that. Yes, ma'am. That's why when you came to me and you, I uh, was like, yeah, I would love to be a part of your show. I was ecstatic when you told me about what were you were going to be talking about and. I'm just, I just feel for him. My heart really goes out for him and, you know, his children and his family. There's a couple of questions in my head real quick before I forget. I'm old. How old was the attendant that was killed? 18. Okay. My next question is if I would have been on the case, what I would have did, I would have looked in the background of that attendant. Because first of all, sixty, seventy dollars, that's not a robbery. That was something else. They just grabbed the money because it was available. That's just my opinion though. Yeah. But I would Bingo. The, I would look into the background of that attendant because then you may find this murderer because, you know, they were all young. You know what I mean? We explored that, uh, and we do explore that on the podcast. Um, towards the end, I think, of the first season, he was involved in some things. Mm-hmm. In fact, he was a suspect. Um, he had went, uh, he had, there's a, a, a town called Leroy that he was, you're probably familiar with it if you know Bloomington. So it's one of those outskirts, even smaller towns. Um, he was back and forth in Leroy. He went to school there and he worked there. There's rumors. And even he said, his mother said, or father said that he did have a, an issue with gambling. In fact, his mother went and confronted the owner of a pool hall and said, you know, my son doesn't need to be coming in here anymore. Um, he's gambling. And then there was one of the biggest things and one of my personal biggest suspicions is that he was a suspect in a Sunoco where the employees were stealing money from their work, right? He was an employee, but they were, but he was a suspect in stealing money. And then in another place, uh, Molly's Tavern, not him, but other people that he was very close to, uh, his friends were stealing money one of the girls was a, her dad was a part-time bartender, bar back or something like that, and janitor at Molly's Tavern. And she had stolen the keys from him and they would frequently go in there and steal stuff. And he told his mother that he was going to testify against them. That's a huge reason for somebody to shoot him, retaliate. Yes. 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or go in there, threaten him, get in a fight. Um, mm-hmm. You know, any street cameras around? That, that was point in the nineties, girl. They probably didn't even. No, nah, they probably didn't even had street light. By the gas you know, station, for nothing. No, there was a credit union across the street, but they didn't have their cameras on. Oh, or some how could be fucked it? up reason. Yeah, yeah I know. I know. I and they didn't have towards that guy. I'm telling you, mm-hmm. lean towards that guy and find out the whereabouts of um, the guy he's supposed to testify against. Find out where he was during that time period. Because right. sometimes you have to look into the victim's life. No one wants to die and no one wants to see anyone murdered. But you have to look into that individual's life when someone's gunned down like that, you know, $60, $70, that's clearly does not seem like a robbery. Right. And the other podcast was more focused on the victim um, and finding who the real killer was. And they did a lot of work and found some alternative suspects who were doing robberies in the area as well. And we just felt like with this podcast, we do care about the victim and want to know the killer. But our goal is to get Jamie out of jail. So absolutely. You know, because you never want to trash a victim. He didn't deserve right. to die for any reason. He didn't deserve to be gunned down. And he was a boy. He family. was like a freshly minted 18-year-old. He yeah. was just a boy. Yeah, okay. somewhat. Exactly. And we struggled with that because we had to put his police records up there that we've dug up and his involvement with other things that we dug up and you know that's not comfortable right but we're putting the truth out there i mean you know this is this is what it is and we made it clear i think he just got involved in some shit um that i think he was in over his head was he shot shot in the head was he because you know that makes a big difference how many times was he shot was he shot in the head that makes a big difference. So he was shot twice mm-hmm. in the chest. In the chest. Um, okay. One was up, yeah, one was up kind of at the shoulder and one was kind of at uh, around the chest. So it sounds area. like he was shooting on his way out. That's what it sounded like to me. Is that so okay? this person, yeah, I, that's what I think. Yeah. I just don't think it was a robbery. It just doesn't fit the profile of all of this we're talking 60 or 70 bucks well especially because the entire cash register drawer was taken the tray the insert was taken so it sounds like he shot bill and then just grabbed the tray on his way out you know a robber doesn't do that a robber takes the money exactly right he'd make you take the money out the cash drawer and he don't even want his hands on it and he's gone and won't have to kill you unless there's interaction so you see, this was personal to me. And I think that, you know, unfortunately for the victim, I think looking into his life and the things that he was involved in, especially testifying against somebody, that's definitely grounds for someone to come at you. So I think that that's a very good start. I have nine minutes left on here before it ends. I'm just going to ask for two special requests from you guys, either you or Leslie, if you guys could talk about just for a brief moment what happened on the 8th of September. And if maybe you can play a small clip of Jamie talking recently, and then we can go ahead and end the show. It's up to you guys, whichever one. 
So on um, Wednesday the 8th, we met in Illinois in McLean County, and Jamie was there. We were all there, his family, his friends, his daughters, everybody. And it was a hearing, over 8,000 missing documents that were discovery materials that Jamie's never been able to see himself. His lawyer was allowed to look at them when she, from the exoneration project, when she noticed that there were a bunch of pages that the police department had given her through another subpoena and she noticed there were a bunch of blacked out pages and she filed and said she wanted to see those pages. So they let her go in and sit down and look at them and take notes, but not have any copies. So now she moved on to the Innocence Project of New York and his new lawyer from the Exoneration Project in Chicago said, no, she wants to see those papers herself and she thinks that she should have copies of them. So they went back and filed motions on it. And the state said um, they weren't obligated to give her those, that the original subpoena was only about forensic material and a, a bulk of those 8,000 pages were not applicable. And anyways, they were already duplicates and she didn't need them. So we all went to court to see what would happen. And the judge said that in the interest of justice, Jamie's defense team deserves to have them all. And um, there will be certain papers from the police department, social security numbers and birth dates blacked out on them. But his lawyer will now have those 8,000 documents that they are discovery materials. And yeah. um Yep. And they will yes. find in there is forensics information. There's alternative suspects. There's confessions by others to the crime. There's a ton of stuff in there that now they'll get to see for the, for the first time and actually investigate and put into CODIS for fingerprinting and forensics data. How was he feeling? Oh, he here. When you guys yes. talk to him? He cried. Well, just so everybody knows, he cried. We all cried. Oh, the judge said yes, the yes, yes. I'm so, happy. so this is the first good ruling that Jamie has had in 22 years. He's been denied mm. all the way up to the Supreme Court with the information, you know, that we found dug up in FOIAs and all of this. He keeps getting denied. And this new judge seems to be wanting justice in the case and it's the first time and he actually did cry in looking at this and determining whether this is discoverable I think justice would be necessary therefore uh, I'm going to grant the defense motions is subject to the thinking during the arguments uh what did you think that was the first time that you heard warren argued your case what'd you think about that i thought she did amazing like wow like she was most she was definitely prepared you know when she started writing case law and when she was making the counter argument to the state claim that we weren't entitled to leave was really impressed with her as well. Um, she had an answer for everything. You wouldn't even remember the case law that she was citing because she was so plain language. Yeah. Making an ethical argument. Yeah. I loved it when he was trying to say that leads were not discoverable. And she said, Your Honor, I have leads in every case that I have. 
I always have leads. I don't know. I, I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> so yeah. that. I was like, that is the funniest damn thing. Hmm. Yeah, she, uh, she was definitely ready for that argument. I, I feel like she anticipated that they were going to try to argue that. She was ready for it. I definitely appreciate just hearing this story because I know a few people that is going through the same situation and um, sometimes you just feel hopeless. You feel like, especially when, like you said, you don't have any family members or you don't have friends and you really have to have a huge support system to get you out of something like this, you know, because having all of those people like that to tackle him is, it's awful. It's awful. And I, I just, I'm just glad you shared this story because it's a lot of people that's innocent and that's going through this. You, Z, thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, he's going yeah. home. We, we, we invite any anyone to reach out to us if they they have any issues with getting their case file or filing FOIAs. Um, we become experts at that. So if anybody is having that kind of trouble, please uh, let us know and we'll be more than happy to point you in the right direction. I um, will definitely. We found a lot of information. I will definitely. You know what? This fell in my lap, Tam, and we're going to talk after this. This fell in my lap for a reason and I will get you some information. We'll talk after this, but, um, okay. Okay. Mimi share this information because these links don't work and I'm going to get out of here. Uh, I'm so glad that you young ladies were dedicated to helping, um, Jamie. He's going home y'all because that attorney is on it. That attorney is on it. That attorney is on it, baby. And this is his time. Tell him to keep his head up and keep that energy, that energy that he's going home. Make sure he keeps that thought in his head. Yes. Yes. Love it. Prayer for him and his family. And I thank you guys for coming. My show is ending now. Anyone that wants to follow me, follow me on Instagram at Fierce, F-I-E-R-C-E underscore Revenge. And then, or you can follow me on Twitter, Fierce Revenge, without the underscore. You can go to my Facebook page. That's my Facebook business page. It's a string of things with a Z. You can contact me via email, a string of things with a Z at gmail.com. We may do a part two to this because I really enjoy just listening and I want to know the outcome and I want to keep you guys up to date as well. So, I really enjoyed you guys on my show. I do podcasts every Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Sunday at 10 p.m. Central Standard Time. So you guys will see me Tuesday, hopefully, if I'm not. I'm trying to shake this COVID, y'all. I'm trying to shake it. <laughs> so Shake uh, it, baby, shake it. <laughs> so hopefully you guys will see me. But you guys have a blessed night, and thank you so much, everyone, for coming out and You know, prayers for Jamie, justice for Jamie, y'all. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW.
There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential.